friends, Romans, countrymen, let me hear this, ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars Podcast. This is episode 59. It is October 14th, 2019. I'm here with Suzanne McDermott this week. And I want to give a shout out, as always, to the Patreon supporters who keep this thing alive. Shout out to the new ones, JC King, Elder Tenshi, and Nick DeRieger. Thank you very much. And shout out to the OG original supporters, Sheridan, Liam, and Wade. Thank you very much. If you want to listen to the entire back catalog of Patreon songs and be featured on the podcast, check it out. Patreon.com slash MCLars. You get essays, videos, instrumentals, ringtones, merch, a live annual show that you get to tune into stream. It's super cool. Be sure to check that out and uh, shout out to the supporters. So, Suzanne McDermott. Many of you may have heard on Indie Rocket Science, which was the mixtape I put out right before Lars Attacks, I had a song called The Roswell Incident. And this song was based on a song Suzanne McDermott wrote that is a very beautiful, haunting folk song about what may have happened in Roswell. And as we talk about on the podcast, I like to take old literature and bring it to life with my literary lit hop raps. McDermott took the story from the perspective of two kids and told the story of what happens when, you know, supposedly what happened in 1947 in Roswell went down. Um, I messaged McDermott. I sent her the song and I was so happy that she liked my version because my version is different. Hers has a chorus and it has kind of a cadence. I kind of truncated the story and took her descriptions and turned it into a rap. Then the chorus is like samples from the news reports. I remember right before I left for college, I saw this movie called Six Days in Roswell, and I was dating someone whose family lived up in Seattle, and her brother had worked on this documentary. And it's a really funny documentary about this dude from Minnesota who, it's kind of like a mockumentary, but he comes down to Roswell for the 50th anniversary of what the supposed um, saucer landing. And all this is very topical now with the quote-unquote Area 51 raid and everything. Um, but he goes and interviews people on the 50th anniversary. And McDermott was there because she made an EP based on this song and was there promoting it and playing shows. And she ended up being in the documentary because she plays this song and it plays over the credits. But this song always had a really profound visceral impact on me because as you'll hear i'll play the song after the interview um the kid has to go along with her father saying no we can't talk about this the government doesn't want us to talk about it let's not talk about it we this is this is something that is like off limits for discussion and it creates a barrier between the father and the daughter and it's like it's it's a sad story because it's like kind of highlights the line between childhood and adulthood and this girl who's just living on a ranch and her father sees the ufo or whatever it is the government secret and can't talk about it and she's like the cadence is what could we learn if we talked about it and what i love about the song is she talks about this interview she went through and went through real interviews with people to try to describe the field of weird debris so this song always for me when i listen to it takes me back to that memory of high school the end of high school right before college and like a few weeks before 9 11 happened is when i first heard this song and it kind of reminds me of like that innocence of living in a world before horrible or scary or weird things can happen, right? And I know that's kind of like an extended, broad metaphor, but 
that's why the song has a lot of meaning to me because it kind of feels like to me a link to childhood pre-college life if that makes sense anyway it was great talking to suzanne she's really interesting eloquent woman and she has a lot to say and i encourage you all to go check out her music buy her cds stream her stuff it's on spotify she's a a wise and talented artist. So this is my interview with Suzanne McDermott. Ladies and gentlemen, I am talking to Suzanne McDermott. And uh, I've loved her music for a very long time, maybe about, I would say, close to 20 years. And I think it's really cool to have her on the podcast. And as many of the fans know, I did a cover of her Roswell uh, song on one of my mixtapes. I recently reached out to you and sent it to you, and I was very happy that you didn't hate it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a good surprise. No, I loved it. (laughs) Have you ever had any, any rappers cover your songs like that? Not to my knowledge. <laughs> Although, you know, you're you're a perfect example of, um, you know, something being out there and me not being aware of it at all. And that's not the first time that's happened, and it's not the first time it's happened with that song. Let's get right into it. Um, where are you from, and how do you think growing up where you did influenced you as both an artist and a healer? Oh, it's so interesting that you picked up on the healer portion, because that's not something that I... Uh, consciously really have been promoting, but we can talk about that a little bit. I was born in Bryn Mawr Hospital, and I grew up in suburban Philadelphia along what is known as the main line. As an artist, uh, both musical and uh, visual and uh, literary, you know, poetically, uh, I have to credit certainly both of my parents and uh, the location. So um, my father was an early audiophile and a great lover of music. He caught Toscanini's baton once and bought uh, Hmm. albums from Sam Goody at his first record store in New York. And um, anyway, so... Lots of music. My mother was a musician, too, not professionally, but she was also a poet and a watercolor artist. So uh, I just grew up in an extremely enriched um, environment. And, uh, you know, my mom would sleep with the uh, Oxford Book of English poetry next to her bed, and my father knew Shakespeare like the back of his hand. So also... Uh, I grew up right where the Philadelphia Museum was and Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and uh, lots of art museums in addition to those. And also, uh, musically, of course, there was the Philadelphia Orchestra and uh, lots of great music and musicians in Philadelphia, but there was a, a folk club uh, in Bryn Mawr called the Main Point that had performers from uh, like early blues players, 
to uh, folk singer-songwriters of the era to classical music uh, performances to like Lou Reed uh, when he split off from the Velvet Underground and it's where Springsteen uh, did his E Street Band's uh, first performances. So like everybody played there and they Mm. played there from Wednesday through Sunday. And because I was really young and already performing, uh, they would let me in for free and I would sit in the radiator uh, at the back of the 200 seat hall and I could just watch these performers over and over and over again. And uh, that was a great, great education. So that... And then, Mm. um, you know, regarding the healing thing, my dad was a big uh, physical fitness freak. And he he rode single skull on the Schuylkill when he was a young man and uh, also went to health food stores before there were such things, really. So we always had really healthy food in the house. And, uh, you know, my father would make sure that we my brother and I both were swimming when we were very, very young. And uh, my mother was into the very early self-help books and spiritual uh, uh, books. So it was, all of that stuff was very uh, integral to my upbringing and experience. And uh, playing music, writing, uh, painting, all that stuff is creative healing process in and of itself right so yeah right you know when i've fallen apart in my life uh oftentimes i'll go i'll tell myself to just draw you know you just pick up a pencil or a pen and just start drawing and uh so how's that for an answer that's a great answer (laughs) so you grew up in philadelphia um till college i grew up in suburban philadelphia difference difference uh yeah although i went into philadelphia to uh both study at the philadelphia museum of art and to work at a music store in downtown uh for a little while oh yeah plus i worked for a music publisher uh when i was in high school through uh my early 20s theater presser music company i didn't go right to college i i went uh I went to LA <laughs> and, and uh, I spent my twenties in Santa Monica uh, working for a guitar shop uh, and concert series. That was not the guitar shop, but the concert series was based on the main point. Uh, it was started by Bobby Kimmel who founded the stone ponies and discovered Linda Ronstadt. And then uh, it was one of those stories where I happened to walk in the door to apply for a job and he was sitting there and he found out that I, you know, basically spent half of my high school years at the main point and uh, hired me to work at uh, McCabe's. And then I designed the McCabe's t-shirt and then other stuff happened but also i worked for sarah vaughn out there uh as her secretary for a few years and uh suddenly i was embedded in the great jazz world and uh Mm. that was wow what a privilege and uh yeah that's cool it's you know suzanne it seems like 
when I talk to veterans in the arts world, it seems like there was this interesting um, culture where, and I kind of, my career started at the end of this, where going to a physical place had a lot of magic and mystery and ability to have like a connection with someone like, oh, I used to go to a lot of shows at this place, or I trained with these teachers where now it just, everything feels so like digital tribes and digital communities and going to a place to become an expert or become a like super skilled practitioner is such a romantic, beautiful, like thing. It's like this idea of you leaving for California and then meeting <laughs> this person. And, you know, it's very, it's cool. And I wonder if, if the world is still that way, you know, if, or if you live like a singularly unique, like experience in a specific time, you know, Who, me. Yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yes, it was a very different time. And yes, uh, different locations, uh, I think energetically had, still have uh, different, what I always have called a gestalt. You know, there's a different Mm. energetic makeup to different places um, on the globe. And yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But um, like Los Angeles uh, was very unique and it still is. But, you know, there were just so, there were fewer people on the planet. So everything wasn't so. And uh, yes, you would go to a particular place to study with a particular person and uh, or to interact with a certain group of people. And in L.A., uh, when I arrived, it was just after, you know, a lot of people moved from Europe, a lot of um, artists and musicians, composers and so forth, moved from Europe to Los Angeles um, because of uh, the Second World War and uh, the Nazi regime. So there was like Thomas Mann and um, Arnold Schoenberg and... Uh, well, a lot of other people, like Aldous Huxley lived there, but not for the mm. same reason. And so that that particular group of people were still kind of influencing the mindset, I think, of uh, the people who lived in L.A. So anyway, there was that. But also everything wasn't such a scene. You know, it mm. was a little bit more relaxed. You know, you could, I could walk in, walk up and meet somebody um, uh, or interact with someone who now we wouldn't really be able to touch or interact with. Connecting with people in a physical realm to further your own creative journey and how like you, you know, for me, I'm I'm, I'm from California. I moved to the East Coast and that really changed my life, you know, and like it's important to be fearless. And if you have the opportunity to do it, I would recommend young people do it instead of just trying to build their music careers online from the town they grew up in. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, well, um, you know, just as an aside, a very good friend of mine, uh, just died a few days ago, Chris Rouse, who's, a he, he taught at Eastman composition at Eastman and Juilliard. But when, we were friends um, with a couple of other people. We were all in Philadelphia, and uh, I think he was working at 
Sam Goodies, and he had come to Philadelphia to study with the composer George Crumb. And, you know, that brought him to Philadelphia between Oberlin and Cornell. Mm. And that, uh, amongst a small group of people, and I'm sure it resonated out from there, uh, was really important. But, you know, the world is a really different place now. I don't have to probably say that out loud. And um, still, travel is uh, really critical, I think, to uh, kind of bumping up against other people, especially when you're young. And I don't really know what scene, like local scenes are like anymore. You know, if everything's really become uh, digitalized, but, you know, we had a different experience of the world and I haven't actually set down to tease that out to see, you know, what, what really the differences are because, and I think this is true of even um, cultural critics or people who write about this is that um, we are all in it right now. We are all in the digital age, like what we're doing here, you know? And uh, so it's, it's an interesting question, and I think it's, it's, it's worth a whole, you know, set of interviews or a whole set of podcasts with people to, to explore that. But um, the delivery of music was different. The recording of music mm. was different. Um, you know, even when I was just recording my first album, um, we were just switching from, and this really sounds like the Dark Ages, but it wasn't that long ago, although it was kind of depending on who you're talking to. Um, switching from analog to digital, you know, the studios all had big, uh, you know, the tape reels and stuff. And anyway, yeah. So let's talk about that. So you presumably had written many songs up until you wrote your first album like i'm sure that was always a dream of yours right to be in a studio and do an album or did it kind of manifest quickly for you like what was the process to making the first record yeah how do you know that (laughs) (laughs) um the the process was and i'll be as succinct as i can um you know i performed you know well I, i started performing when i was like five or six but uh, you know, I started performing in clubs uh, when I was like 15. And then I had no idea how to make a career out of that. And I wasn't really writing yet. So time passes. And um, in Santa Monica, I started performing again. Um, in like uh, in my mid 20s, I guess. And you know, except for McCabe's and uh, maybe the Ashgrove and the Troubadour, there really weren't places uh, for me to perform. So I wound up performing with a lot of the early alternative bands and the kind of in the post-punk clubs, like the anti-club. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I hung out with the Fibonacci's. They were really great. Uh, kind of art 
performance band and um you know they shared a studio with x or wall of voodoo i forget which one anyway so you know (laughs) that was those were the people that i was performing around when i was essentially even though i was playing a gibson 335 uh that was i i was playing finger style guitar and performing the same kind of songs that all, you know, that I do. And, um, so, you know, it's what would be classified as folk, but, uh, that's where I was performing. And that was kind of the scene there, uh, mm. and, and a place to perform. And did you have a band or would you often play solo? Always solo. I mean, yeah. always. It's just, wow. yeah, I, I've always performed solo and, uh, you know, the kind of guitar work that I do is it, in a way it's almost orchestral, you know, because it's finger style and I can do a lot of things with it. And, um, you know, the, uh, rhythm, the rhythms that I have embedded in that and the harmonies, uh, they're really integral with my, uh, the vocal line. And, and I found the one problem I found when I was working with engineers or didn't, uh, claim complete control over the process, which I couldn't always do, um, was that my recordings, people tended to want to put the voice in front and the guitar and back mm. like, you know, girl and guitar. And, um, and I really hear the music that I would write the songs that I would write the, the vocal line and the guitar work are really, uh, integral. Yeah, that makes sense. And your albums have layers, but the guitar and the singing are the two like main elements, and that's cool. I did write some of the lines for the first album, Souvenir, and I had musician friends in the Boston area come in and do the work with me, and then I did some of the percussion. I toured Europe a lot, and I sort of fell in love with these musicians who worked with Odd von Moors in the Netherlands. There was a sax player, Menno Romers, and a drummer, uh, both of whom I was really fond of. And so what I wound up doing is uh, using uh, that group of musicians for Ephemera and then The Glory. And I just loved their musicianship. I loved the um, choices they would make harmonically. And um, I just, I really trusted their, uh, whatever they wanted to say, you know, musically. And uh, so that's why I did half of Ephemera in Holland and half of and all of the glory there. Talk about travel, right? The importance of travel. Yeah, that's right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Speaking of ephemera, you know, I, I, if you don't mind, I'd love to talk about the Roswell incident. Let's do that. <laughs> a lot of what I like to do with my writing is I'll take like a Shakespeare play and turn it into a song or Edgar Allan Poe. 
and or old lit I call it lit hop and it's like recreating retelling these stories and what always struck me so much about that song is your emotional memory of the events of that day and how it's almost like very emotional how a child would feel realizing that the covering of a government conspiracy is so alien so to speak to all the um goodness and truth and light that a kid sees the world you're supposed to tell the truth dad you're supposed to if you see a spaceship crash you're supposed to tell the world you're not supposed to keep it secret and how the character in that song is confronted with this harsh reality of how adults operate and it's such a poignant sad beautiful song that's like i was like wait was this person there at the at the incident no it couldn't be she would have be she's too young <laughs> thank you so yeah so it's like you had to have that's anyway i've always loved that song and i would love to hear about how you even thought of writing a song like that okay here it comes yeah. you ready all right so um i was at a folk festival and someone said oh yeah i lived in your area 51 and i was like what it what tell me what that is again and then i started thinking about roswell and then I thought, oh, my God, because I had written a song about um, J. Robert Oppenheimer and uh, the events in his personal life leading up to uh, the creation of the, the first atomic bomb. And so that I, I really think of the Roswell song as sort of a companion piece to that uh, Oppenheimer mm. song. And I wrote them many, many years apart. But so I thought, wow the Roswell incident, what a great idea for a sort of a dust bowl ballad treatment, you know, like a Woody Guthrie kind of thing. Uh, I mean, not that I would copy him. It sort of came out my own way, but anyhow, so that was the kernel. And then it's such a complex um, subject and event and uh, you know, did it happen? Did it not happen? And so I decided to treat it as a legend rather than, mm. you know, a story or to, I didn't want to make fun of it. And um, I think that a lot for, at least for a long time, a lot of songs amongst other things uh, about uh, aliens or quote unquote spaceships, flying saucers, whatever, they uh, make a joke out of it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so then I just read everything I could find on the Roswell incident. And that was actually, I think the year that men in black came out, like right, oh. right when I was in the middle of it, uh, men in black came out and I was like, wow. Or what was the other thing? What was the other movie with Will Smith? Independence day. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. I think it was independence yeah. day. That's right. Uh, so I read a lot and then I thought, okay, now I know all I, 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 I read all this information. And then the big problem was framing it. Like, how mm. am I going to, how am I going to tell the story, you know, and make it coherent? So there were two children involved. There was uh, the daughter of Mac Brazel, the flying saucer allegedly crashed on. And then there was the son, um, the son of the military officer, who was charged with cleaning it up. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I merged the two children and made the child the narrator. And then everything just like went 
you know, everything fell into place. So that was the device I used. And, um, and actually what happens in the song is, yeah. So it's very personal because what I, what I did was I lifted a lot of that song is I just lifted um, verbatim interviews with the children and with other people in the area. And I just kind of, right. So I I took their words and I planted them in the song. And then um, the thing that happens is that, it's not so much that the child is, you know, thinks that the truth should be told, but what happens is when she, at the end, when she asks her father what happened, she never got an answer. So there's the kind of meta, maybe, conspiracy, you know, of a government cover-up and uh, that, but there's also the uh, wedge of silence that's driven between a parent and a child, Mm. right? So um, that, and many, many people (laughs) um, thought I was really talking about my father. (laughs) I'm like, no, no. Impossible. (laughs) No, I'm not that old. (laughs) Um, That is how the song came about. And the first time I sang it, I was scared to death because I was A, an opening act. B, uh, the person I was opening for was kind of not really even a folky. Uh, I was in Mm. a little club. It's a six plus minute song about a flying saucer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I had never performed it before and there as you know a lot of words so right. um <laughs> it was I was just thought, I thought okay here goes nothing and um so I performed it and I was just shocked by how moved people were by the song I was not expecting that at all and um so over the years, amazing things happened, like um, an older man who, <laughs> older than me, older man came up to me once and uh, was like, you know, I was in the Air Force and we were scheduled to land in Roswell at that time and they redirected our flight. So... That was, wow. yeah, yeah. And um, so things happened that, um, or people came up to me with personal stories that I could never have imagined. And so that was kind of cool. Stories about encounters maybe, or stories about Roswell? No, not encounters. Stories about Roswell, um, either their own or their father's or somebody's, like, very much down to earth um, experience that would indicate that something big really happened in Roswell in 1947. So, yeah. Wow. You know, and it's like telling the story from a perspective of a character who's not a central character tends to have, you have the liberty to create a lot of weight and 
emotional honesty because your character is observing the events and she doesn't know what to think. And that creates a very honest portrait of this period in our history of our country where we don't know what to think either. So I think she is very timelessly relatable. Thank you. That That's a high compliment. And um, I'm really glad you brought that up because I, no one, you know, I've never had an opportunity to actually say this before. And it does apply to the Oppenheimer song, which is really a song that I wrote um, that brought me back. I thought, you know, this is such an important song that, I really need to get back out there and start writing again. But anyway, I write not, you know, I don't write with the intention of whatever you just said, you know, about making something, uh, you know, emotionally relatable or I I, I don't write from that uh, kind of construct. Um, I, I really write uh, in a way like an actor so mm. I look at a situation. I mean, some of my songs are personal, like the song I wrote about my mother, When You Became My Child. So that's a very personal song, and there are a couple more. But um, when I write songs like Roswell or Oppenheimer or, oh, like Bonnie Ann about Anne Bonnie the Pirate, or I have a song about a monster, mm. you know, uh, afraid of the dark. And so what I do is, I mean, my natural inclination, this isn't something I intended to do. It's just something that I, I, I naturally did. Uh, and I kind of put myself into the character and then I speak from the character. So, or the character's perspective. So, you know, in the case of Roswell, once I, decided on the narrator, then I could sort of step into the character of the narrator, who was actually two real people, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then tell the story from my imagined perspective, right? So that's how that happens. And I have to add that the son of the military officer in Roswell. He was a, an MD, a doctor, and he was there with uh, several of his children and his wife. And he invited me up to his room with uh, the children and his wife to sing the song for him. Mm. So I <laughs> was wow. in the Stark Hotel room singing to, oh, he was such a lovely man too. Um, singing to the person who I was quoting him as a child in the song. It was real. It was surreal and and emotional, I think for everybody, but especially for the two of us. And uh, fortunately he liked the song. And um, (laughs) uh, so, uh, yeah, that was, that was really unexpected. And, I mean, that happened with the, the Oppenheimer song, too. Uh, mm. Just very briefly, I later, long after I wrote the Oppenheimer song, I um, worked at MIT and was friendly with uh, a few of the older uh, 
physicists who worked on the Manhattan Project. And oh, wow. Yeah. So that was also a very interesting yeah, experience. So anyway, back to you, Lars. <laughs> no, it's interesting how songs can become like humans in that they have their own agency, they have they have their own traveling patterns, they have their own life of their own. It's uh it's fascinating and how you would never think you'd meet this human who inspired your character role. Or you probably never think you'd ever meet a rapper who did a cover one of your songs and had you on, asked you to be on his podcast, right? Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. And not only that, one day um, I got a call from uh, a producer in Sweden who was part of and producer of uh, a little band there. And they wanted to use the Roswell song, which they heard um, at the end of the soundtrack of Six Days in Roswell. And uh, so they wound up using the music, writing Swedish lyrics called Min Papa, my father. Mm. And then it was different from there on in. It wasn't about the Roswell incident. But it won Swedish Grammys. And hey. um, yeah, it was sort of a big deal. And uh, I mean, in Sweden. <laughs> So uh, that was amazing. How did you connect with the uh, Six Days in Roswell team? And what was it like like working on that? Because it's a very emotional, for the audience listening, really recommend this movie. Because um, it's that it's a very evocative closing scene. Because it's kind of funny throughout the movie. And then there's this like emotional weight to the end. Where you, you you're featured over the credits and you're playing live. And... Yeah, let's talk about all that experience, like being in a documentary. <laughs> I'll try not to ruin it for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, just a little background. So I wrote this song, and then I was in San Francisco uh, at a college friend's apartment, and a bunch of us were sitting talking, and uh, this friend one of my college friends who is always coming up with great ideas. He's like, you've got to put this on an EP. He's like, you have to release this and you have to go to Roswell. And, oh. you know, so <laughs> I made, uh, I made a recording, put it on an EP. I think I sent a package to the mayor, the then mayor of Roswell who loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, And so I was invited to go to Roswell to perform like in, it's not the original hangar, but in the hangar um, for the big dinner for the mucky mucks, you know, involved in the 50th anniversary of the Roswell incident. So, um, and with, Whit, what's his name? Whitley or Whitney Stryber. Oh, the guy who wrote Communion? Yeah, he was yeah. there. Yeah, right. And um, Did you talk to him? Oh, yeah. I think we sat at the same table. Wow. I got a little booth uh, at the convention, and it was, it was an amazing event. So in a nutshell, there were, there were, because it was so highly publicized, there were more press there than there were attendees also wow there were these different factions so there were just sort of family fun 
people there with their kids, just like for a, you know, American affair. Yeah, it really was like walking through a Ray Bradbury story, the whole wow. thing. Wow. And so there were there was just sort of the Americana fun, family fun stuff that was going on. And then there were uh, there was a very serious convention of military types who'd written scholarly articles and you know the real serious people who people take seriously then there was the sort of lunatic fringe of you know people who i don't know but people who'd been on board the spaceships and stuff and for example like right next to me in my booth there were a group of people one of the women was in a cat costume you know like with a leotard and makeup and stuff and um <laughs> their shtick was that jesus was an alien and they kept shouting i am not of this world <laughs> you know I'm right not. so uh, there was this it was just this weird combination of all different types of people and groups of people and i booked a bunch of gigs there, everything that I could. And one of them was for the city in this outdoor venue. Uh, so I get there, stuff's happening. And there's this camera crew walking around with a, a guy who's interviewing people. Right. And uh, they're all Canadian, lovely, lovely guys really fun and um so we kept bumping into each other because it was kind of a small you know it's a small town and you could only go so many places so we kept bumping into each other and they kept filming me and um and we got to be very friendly and then uh when i performed at what you saw uh, over the end credits there was I was under a tent outside. The cord to my guitar just barely allowed me to reach the vocal microphone. Mm. So I was physically uncomfortable. And then um, there were, maybe there were six people in the audience plus the film crew. Mm. So uh, that then that's normal. You know, I mean, right. you know, touring as a folk musician, you know, <laughs> The great experiences are, that's not completely true, but, you know, you, you get used to playing for a few people. And that's that goes for anybody. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. that's just the nature of touring, especially touring solo and just booking as many gigs as you can. But anyway, uh, so time passes. I don't know, maybe a whole year goes by and I get a call from Roger Nygaard, who's one of the loveliest uh, guys. And he, he was the producer of this and he produced Trekkies, the movie. Mm. And he has since, he's a, he's an editor uh, and he makes these indie movies. And um, so he's, he was editor for Veep and Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think since then, but anyway, he calls me up and introduces himself and asks me if I, uh, if he can use that footage of me and, uh, you know, boilerplate contract and, um, 
so that, and it was another year or so before the movie was released, I think. And um, that's how that happened. Wow. And uh, then, you know, it, it because Roger's very savvy and uh, well-connected, he really uh, moves his films through the international festival circuit as much as he can. And that's why the guy in Sweden heard the song because he was a producer and he heard the movie and then his assistant in the office said, yeah. And then he just sat there and he watched the end credits over and over and over again. So they did actually edit the song. Oh, they did? I, yeah, yeah. But I would be the only person that is aware of that because I was like, what just happened? Yeah. Oh. But uh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, that's fine. Uh, I know that. And Roger knows that. <laughs> and now our listeners know that. <laughs> and now your listeners know that. <laughs> but you you have a lot of your work on your website. You have a very cool website. And part of your business now is you do this thing called creative coaching. I do to select clients. And how has being a teacher of creativity has helped you personally with your own projects? I would say that uh, it's helped me become more compassionate, but also it's just a way of teaching people. If, if I'm doing creative coaching, if I'm helping people with a creative project, then like I just know how to, I know how to do stuff. Like mm. I know how to break a process down. I know how to break a project down so that um, it's doable. It is um, manageable that you can get through to the next steps and keep the end result in sight and uh, reach it and complete the project. I was listening to an astrologer friend the other day do a YouTube thing and he was saying, I'm a Virgo, I'm a Virgo, right? Mm. Uh, he was like, I'm a Virgo and I, I really need a beginning, a middle and an end. Like if you're not gonna finish something, he was talking about George Martin and Game of Thrones. He's like, if you're not going to finish something, like why bother right. starting it? But um, so uh, there are so many places, you know, to address uh, the second part of your question. There's so many places because creative projects have so many different aspects to them, not just the create whatever you're doing, whether it's a, an exhibit you're going to mount uh, and you need to do the paintings for it if you're making an album or if you just want to, uh, you know, write a book, whatever it is you're doing. Um, there's so many different um, parts and movable parts and things that, are, you know, obstacles that are going to arise both internally and uh, externally. Mm. And there are going to be things that are out of your control and you're going to have to uh, pivot. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to, there's so, so many ways, but the point is um, I think that, you know, if I were just going to use one phrase, it's don't give up. Mm. And on the other hand, you know, the Seth Godin thing is there's an old fashioned, you know, like early 20th century uh, poem, like don't give up. I forget what it is. I, I meant to uh, pull it out, but I forgot. And uh, when things are, it's, it's very sing songy, but mm. uh, you know, and the last line of each verse is 
you know, you might think of doing it, but don't you, you know, don't give up. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for perseverance, mm-hmm. for um, being able to adjust. Also, being kind to yourself mm. and uh, knowing when to rest uh, because we're in such a go, 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 do, 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 succeed, achieve, you know, it's just like, oh my God, just stop for a minute, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so much of the creative process is, as a sculptor I talked to once said, just standing around with a cup of coffee in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? Like it's true, it's true, and and we we lose sight of the fact because time is changing uh, now too, mm-hmm. and our perception of time is changing. Like everything's changing right now, and um, you have to be able to be your own best friend, love yourself, give yourself a break without thinking it's the end of the world, mm. and. Um, kind of readjusting, you know? Uh, yeah. So there's so many reasons why people might run into trouble. Uh, a, creative types might run into trouble. When I was really young, it didn't cost a fortune to rent an apartment. Mm. You know, it the overhead alone was not a source of great stress. Now, you know, we're in a uh, situation on the planet where everything is a source of stress. Yeah. You know, so, um, oh, the other thing that's really important to remember, like you could just slap it on your forehead or on your bathroom mirror, and that is like, what is your why? You know, why? Mm. Why are you doing this? Not so much what you're getting out of it, but you do have to ask yourself that um, at certain points. And um, and then oftentimes, and anyone will tell you this, oftentimes the end result is not what you originally envisioned. And also, I have a lot to say about this, so I'll just wrap this up here. <laughs> but I mean, because I no, have, good. This I is great. literally have spent my life, um, you know, choosing to do creative work, and I do want to talk about form uh, before we get off. But oftentimes, the end result—like you don't even know what the end result is. You can't imagine. So, for example, if you're writing a novel, like most novelists will tell you, yeah, I had no idea this. I don't write novels, okay? I don't read many novels. But uh, I've heard many interviews with writers who say that the characters tend to take over the the plot. You know, or that, you know, it's it's character driven and, you know, like what happens. And you know that TV writers, they don't know, like, if they're going to have 13 seasons and what's going to happen by the end of the 13th season. So right. uh, the reason I'm saying that is that a lot of times you don't really know what the end is, but you're following an idea. Uh, so, for example, when I started the Roswell song, I had no idea that it was going to be narrated by a child. And um, also I didn't know it was going to be six minutes and 
you know, almost the seven minutes on. And, oh, I took a lot of uh, flack from fellow singer-songwriters about that, you know, when people want to be mean or whatever. But, you know. Why? They think it's too long? They say it's too long or what? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, you know, that was probably a case where they were waiting to take their turn. But, you know, but (laughs) I mean, that was, (laughs) you know, or... And I don't even think about it. Like, I don't intentionally, sometimes I do, but it depends, you know, like uh, rhyme schemes or, you know, a lot of my songs don't follow particular formulas. Um, So anyway, uh, but back to the creative coaching thing, it's a way of helping people to share what I've learned, uh, which, which is how, you know, a lot of it is project management. I just love form. Mm. You know, I love poetic form, musical form. Uh, with with visual art, it's not so much about that unless I'm we're looking at uh, the history of painting or art history or something, but um, or architecture. But um, but I'm fascinated by uh, creative form and how to work within. Uh, the different rules or structures or whatever. It's a way of exploring an idea and or emotion or um, an impulse to make something in a different set of architectural rules, Mm. let's say. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think you'll ever want to write more songs? I love writing songs, but I'm a very uh, pragmatic person. So I don't do things and then stick them in drawers. Mm. You know, like Charles Ives could write a symphony and stick it, you know, under the bed or in a drawer or something. I'm kind of project oriented. So if, if, and plus, you know, I have to be performing in order to sing the song. Because to me, it's a way of communicating and then, I want people to hear it and I'm naturally a performer, but at this stage of the game, uh, (laughs) like, you know, I I would have to have uh, a reason and sure. I think there's a lot to write about. um, And I do think about it, but it also takes time. You know, it takes a lot of time. Uh, You know, my guitar chops have to be up. Um, You know, all of these pursuits involve time practice lots of practice you know and even just oh my god just to learn one of my songs for me to learn to to compose and learn and get get it into muscle memory yeah uh, one of my songs so it would it would i've thought about you know different ways of doing it but um you know as a solo person (laughs) uh Really, you know, there's, you know, house cleaning, laundry. <laughs> there's just all the, there's all the, the things that take up time in a day, and um, yeah, I did it. I like, I woke up one day and I was just like, "Oops, I better do this now," yeah, because uh, otherwise, I'm I'm gonna be 65 and filled with regret. Mm. So. 
I went for it and um, I did it and I recommend that people do it. When, I mean, that's why, you know, when you look at the music scene, except for big name, uh, you know, blockbuster acts or uh, performers, writers, artists, whatever, um, it's mostly all young people. Right. I agree because right? they want right? to, they can be on the road. It's not so hard on their bodies and souls to live in a van. Oh yeah. And yeah. He, I knew right away. I was just like, Oh, this is not a life for me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'm too, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot, but, uh, and that's why I started teaching drawing and watercolor. Cause mm. I thought, well, I'm not employable anymore. You know, once you work for yourself, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but anyway, it's a very different world too. So one of the reasons I stopped was um, after 9-11, I was like, what do you mean I can't put my guitar in the overhead? Oh, right. And, uh, huh. and it just got to be, uh, it got to be too complicated and um, for many reasons, but anyway. Mm. So I would love to write songs. I love the process. I love doing it, but I really need, or, you know, I'm a project-oriented person, so. That's a good perspective. That's a great answer. So if, if the right opportunity came and it made sense and the project made sense, maybe, but, but, yeah. and, but like you said, standing with a cup of coffee, that's part of the creative process. Living life gives you this fuel for whatever it is you do creatively. And I think that's a, that's a message that people forget because everyone wants the likes, the views, the streaming, the, the, um, the hits, where we lose sight of like the why, why are we doing this? And I love that you said that. It's like such a great thing to come back to, you know, why? Well, cause the, we, you, you have no choice. You want to say it, not that you should, you want to, when you do create something, I think that's important. Yeah. Well, you know, somebody's why might be a yacht, you know, okay, or, yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, it, 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 on the one hand, it's the whole, like, and that whole thing, it's, if you step back, it is sort of insane, but that's sort of the construct that y'all are working within right now. Plus, um, it's just a completely different scene right now. You know, my brother's oldest son just came into this town where I've been living and with his girlfriend and they played to a, there were three acts on the bill, but they played to a packed big theater. And I was just like, explain to me, you know, what is the scene? Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand this, you know? So, you know, the entire music scene has just radically changed from, you know, when I started recording and touring. You know what, Suzanne? Good songs will be always be timeless, and your songs are timeless. And thanks, I think about that too. How the yeah. scene I started in has changed, and it always changes. Especially hip hop is forever reinventing itself, and yeah, finding those, creating those good songs is something that will last forever, and it transcends a scene and transcends all of that. And I like to remind myself that. <laughs> you know well it's yeah. good to be heard i yeah. like it when the songs are heard and that's sort of my that's true too. <laughs> that's my dream it's like there's so much 
out there. Yeah. And um, I, I love my songs. Yeah. You know, I love my songs and they're not, you know, hits. But then, you know, I always think of the ode to Billy Joe. Um, and that's not what you would consider a hit song. And yet it really, it, it was, uh, it was. This has been great. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. And I want to direct the listeners. Your stuff is on Spotify. It's streaming. S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-M-C-D-E-R-M-O-T-T dot com. The difference in payment from Spotify to any other streaming medium is um, considerable. But when, you know, like... What I try to keep in mind is the prime focus is to have people listen. Right. They're on YouTube, too. They're all over the place. Amazon. Amazon, <laughs> iTunes, everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you can stream something, you can listen to my songs. And, uh, yeah, well, this is just such a treat, Lars. Well, Suzanne, thank you for your time. This has been awesome. And um, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I hope that uh, I hope that you enjoyed yourself and that your listeners enjoyed this too. I know they did. All right. Thanks. All right. See ya. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Southeast of Corona, near Roswell, New Mexico In the middle of nowhere No radio, no telephone 1947, and I was 12 years old Big lightning storm one night Beginning of July We heard an explosion Wondered what wondered why Riding out the next morning Over the pasture to check on some sheep That's when Daddy found it The big field of weird debris He brought some of it home then Laid it out on the kitchen floor Bits and pieces of things we'd never seen before like foil but not foil Like wood but not wood Like wire, waxed paper all Weighing much less than it should And everything was so strong We couldn't cut it or scrape it Pliable, unnatural We couldn't burn or break it And there were symbols in purple and pink like a transparent recipe Ranged out in columns But nothing we could read A couple days later Daddy drove into Corona And there he heard the stories What had been seen by others Near Magdalene 
remains of San Augustine, a civil engineer and an archaeological research team. Found a disc-shaped object surrounded by creatures like human but not human, round heads, no hair, small features. A military officer drove up and ordered everyone to Patriotic duty. Then a couple in Roswell, stargazing from their front porch, watched an object speeding through the night of the big storm, like two inverted saucers glowing from the inside, headed straight for the lightning, right out to where we resided. They said we knew. No rocket, no weather balloon Why keep it a secret? What could we learn? What could we learn? We don't know But we do know two things We know what we saw We know that we are not and soldiers where they picked up the pieces and carried them all away Then they jailed my father and they asked him questions under guard in a small room from head to foot tested him He said, you know what I saw I don't know why you're doing this to me but I will keep it Cause you say it's my duty One week later He came home on an airplane Said forget all about it He never spoke of it again But sometimes I asked him Daddy, was it from another planet? Was it something from the future? But I never got an answer Still I know I don't care what they told him Why keep it a secret? What could we learn? What could we learn? Well, I don't know But I do know two things I know what I saw And I know that we are not alone Yeah, I know what I saw I don't 
Thank you, Suzanne. That was super tight. And I enjoyed hearing what you had to say. And thanks for letting us play your song. And thank you for being on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for this week's MC, MC Lars, Lars Patreon, Patreon Larson of, the, of week. the week. This week we got Lars Sneed, my homeboy. He comes to all my North Carolina shows. He drives far. I think Lars Sneed has been <laughs> like more shows than anyone. He's in the top. So he tells his story of how he discovered my music, and it's a very good story. Take it away, Lars. Yo, MC Lars, this is your boy Lars Sneed. I'm in middle of nowhere, the mill stop that I saw a sticker for you on the wall that's about 13 years old in 2006 when I drove down to North Carolina and see you. Saw that same ass intruders. Remembered when I came down to see you. Wanted to call up and talk about that. See you later. Bye. Amazing. <laughs> so next week on the podcast, we have Aaron Tonkin, who was one of the engineers on Bowie's last few records. Um, she's a producer who went to NYU. She produces and mixes a very talented woman, very cool, awesome friend who I know through a friend of my wife's and, um, she's just great. She has a lot to say about the music industry and entrepreneurialism. And it's an honor to have her on the show. So tune in next week. Thanks everyone who came out to see Oakley Doakley and myself rocking house on the West coast. I got shows coming up, but I can't announce them, but the, I'm, I'm going to be touring early next year. So that's what's up. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm so excited like that the podcast is still growing and we're getting new people every week. And so please leave a review. Tell your friends. Apple Podcasts is like a great way to leave a review. Sign into your mom's account. Sign into your friend's account. It helps. It definitely helps. Um, but until then, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Suzanne. And I'll see you guys later. Bye. Oh, by the way, it's MC Lars. <laughs>